Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy continuing fallout from the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis that we discussed in depth yesterday. Uh, well, yesterday after our program, uh, more action in Memphis. Two additional Memphis police officers were relieved of duty, including the uh, white officer who tased Tyree Nichols uh, at the uh, initial stop. In addition to that, fire department officials in Memphis announced the dismissal of two emergency medical techs, uh, they had who had previously been suspended. Now they've been fired straight away. Right. But not charged. And that's a point of contention with you know, Ben Crump, the family's attorney saying, you know, Ben Crump. I know he, he just doesn't go away. It's he's the new Al Sharpton combined with Reverend Jackson um, with a law degree. Yeah. And saying, that, you know, because he's, he needs to be charged. The police reform. That's not it. Hold on. We think that he should be terminated like the other Five black officers that he were was. terminated. He was terminated. I'm sorry, that would be some yeah, problems with the audio, but when he said he wants him charged yeah, with murder okay. like Whatever. everybody else. Fine. Um, uh, I, I don't know how you make out him. I mean, well, maybe. I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, you, you sort of, you can probably make out something approximating a felony murder charge against him, but... Uh, I think it's a reach. Probably not. Um, and I think I'm, if they could charge him, they would have. But, you know, the, the larger point here is what's the real fallout? Uh, the real fallout in addition to holding people accountable who uh, acted unlawfully on that night. Uh, now, what, where are we at? What stage? Well, we're at the stage, and it began over the weekend. The stage where you have generic, mindless shrieks to do something about police in Memphis and everywhere else. And anything entitled police reform will do because the impact on policing or public safety is not the issue. The issue is enhancing the self-esteem of all of the country's keyboard combatants and Starbucks soldiers out there. And so that's what you're really hearing from the professional race hustlers, the amateur race hustlers the keyboard combatants and the Starbucks soldiers. That's what you're hearing. Do something, anything. Call it police reform. Make me feel better. I'm a good person. And some context is needed here. I mean, it's sort of the same thing we talk about when we talk about um, people who commit crimes with guns and the immediate reaction is to ban the instrumentality of evil. So what exactly do you want to do when it comes to police reform? Oh, Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in 
DA than a quick comment. Raphael Manguel, our friend over at the Manhattan Institute, has a good piece on this at City Journal. Uh, one, he reminds us, you know, after the George Floyd police killing in Minneapolis, there was a lot of quote-unquote police reform. In April of 21, New York Times reported 30 states had enacted more than 140 police reform measures in the year following Floyd's murder. City councils and police departments, in, including in Memphis, enacted reforms of their own. According to a Memphis government website, Reimagine memphis.gov memphistn.gov actually is the website but memphis police department policy was already aligned with the policy recommendations of the eight can't wait reform campaign that went viral in 2020 the policies prohibit the use of choke and strangleholds as well as shooting at moving vehicles except when deadly force is authorized they also require officers and or police departments to de-escalate give warnings and exhaust all alternatives before shooting comprehensive comprehensively report use of force, develop a use of force continuum, and intervene when fellow officers use excessive force. So there you go. There's all those reforms that were enacted, including in Memphis. And reforms don't mean much if they're not abided and there's no oversight to enforce them. There's the uh, that sticky uh, implementation piece of it, that sticky day-to-day operation of it, the judgment, the human judgment that's required, the courage that's needed in the moment when you see something wrong that was lacking the night that Tyree Nichols was killed. So you think of the Biden administration had a meeting like convening all the police chiefs and talked about police reform and training and even hiring practices and proper vetting. That wouldn't do anything either. What do you think? I don't know. I mean... Those it just angers me every time I see that tape because they were they were the devil they were monsters I loved the DuPage County Sheriff coined it perfectly they were a wolf pack hungry for a kill he didn't say the hungry for the kill part but he did say they were a wolf pack and I, you got to do something I mean don't we now I mean, what about Senator Scott sorry, Senator Booker what, what do you want to do police reform package did that go anywhere well it didn't go anywhere because the Democrats didn't want to work with Uncle Tim Scott. Well, maybe they should rethink that now uh-huh. and start working together. Is policing really a federal issue or is it a state and local issue? Mm. You need a federal blue ribbon commission. You need a conversation with the federal political leaders. Is that what's going to change what exactly? Oh, there's a second piece of this, too, how anomalous something like this is. But let's make a federal rule, right? Let's make federal rules to handle the anomalous. You know, the the unusual case is terrible case law. Precedent setting based on the unusual case is usually terrible precedent setting. And so, so many of these police reforms, by the way, including Safety Act 1.0 and 2.0, as far as I'm concerned, less obnoxious, but still uh, un- detrimental to public safety. That's in the wake of George Floyd, too. So uh, what? So so you I mean you you want to be a Starbucks warrior, a, a Starbucks uh, a soldier, and a, a keyboard combatant too? Let's have a national conversation. We have to do something. You just said it. <laughs> just like exactly what everybody else says. What? Oh, well, that's have people an idea. talk. Have it's... people talk. Deadly police violence, contrary to the dominant narrative spun by AOC and other law enforcement critics, is statistically rare. 
According to the data compiled by Police Scorecard, a website built by left-wing police critic, a left-wing police critic, Memphis police have been involved in 25 killings between 2013 and 2021, a period in in which Memphis police made some 288,000 arrests. A 2018 study of both deadly and non-deadly force found that over a two-year period in which officers across three police departments fielded over a million calls for service, police made 114,000 arrests and used force of any kind in less than 1% of these arrests. So uh, is the response going to be proportional to the problem? No. No. Why? Because let's do something. Anything. Uh, Get all the uh, political hacks together and have them put together some big omnibus police reform measure like we had our political hacks at the state level do with the Safety Act. And that's going to make it better? Yeah. I'm sorry, who's in charge? involvement, it makes it worse. Who's in charge? The, the the defund the police, decarcerate the prisons crowd. That's who's in charge of major cities in this country. That's who's in the White House, apologist for that crowd. That's who's in control of the Senate. What good is going to come from that collaboration, listening tour, Blue Ribbon Commission? I mean, can, can people get off the hamster wheel for just five seconds? Take a breath and look around. I don't want to know anything. Just do something. Make me feel good about myself. I did so. I said do something, and then they did something. I'm part of the reform. Oh, good for you. In my best Christian bail. Tom and Oswego, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Danny. I, I, I hear this problem over and over and we always seem to focus on the police reform, which is fine. If it's needed, let's reform it. Let's let's make it as good as we can get it. But we never seem to talk about the cons- the, 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 the people who are being stopped and their behavior that leads up to some of these incidents. Maybe our leaders should talk about when you get pulled over by a police officer, say, yes, sir, no, sir. I've been pulled over. My kids have been pulled over. Now, of course, I'm white, so that. I guess is a problem, but if, as long as you're respectful to the officer, I don't, don't see a lot of this stuff happening. We still don't Thanks know why he was even pulled over. We still don't know why he was yanked out of his car, because that's what we see at the beginning of the body cam footage is him just getting yanked out. He's making a general statement, Tom, is you're okay. talking specifically about Tyree Nichols, which uh, is anybody disagreeing that uh, the police acted unlawfully and egregiously? No. But I want to be more outraged. How about uh, we be more room temperature and talking about things soberly so we don't further inflame the passions and advance the ignorance? Yeah. In point of fact, Tyree Nichols actually was saying yes, sir, and no, sir, when he was on the ground. And he was scared because the police escalated the situation. They were wrong from the very beginning, which is why I said yesterday that the guy who— uh, deployed the taser, shouldn't have deployed the taser. He was wrong. You disagree. Oh, I disagree. I'm glad he tased him rather than shot him because other people That's, have done that. that. Those, aren't the, those aren't the choices. Yeah, there is a choice, Dan. You have a gun and you have those a taser. Are not those, are the choi- those are not the legitimate choices. So what you're saying, using you your logic, if you want to follow your logic, if you, if you try following your own logic, is okay. because he could have done one thing unlawfully, it was better he did something that was less lethal unlawfully. How about doing nothing unlawfully? Have you considered that? 
Well, I don't know why they pulled him over. If he blew off a stop sign, it if didn't, he had a tail it light, didn't it matter better. why they pulled him over so, at that moment. There was no, from, you, there was no I, legitimacy. You tell your children, I there tell was my no children, legitimacy the in deploying the taser. You That's the run, point. Was should he have run away? You don't run away. That made it worse. Uh, I, I, this is an impossible conversation. It's not impossible. You. Uh, you, well, you're going to run away at, from cops. Co- co- no, not I'm not. No, you? no, I'm not going to run away at co- with, uh, with, right. with cops. No, I'm not going to resist arrest. Does that necessarily logically follow that deploying the taser in the circumstance that we saw in that video was uh, was a proper act? No, it does not. No, it does not. Well, that's why he doesn't no, have a it job does today. not. Exactly, which but is what I said be yesterday. With murder. Uh, uh, my uh, on my brain. Uh, all right, I need to take a mental health break. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Back in October, you'll recall, we uh, brought you the story with some help from... uh, Thomas More Society attorney Peter Breen of Mark Hoke, who is a pro-life activist in uh, rural Pennsylvania, who um, was the subject of a allegation that he pushed a guy outside an abortion mill. Pushed him. One of these Planned Parenthood uh, ghouls. Uh, local prosecutors declined to charge him. Apparently, they didn't think there was evidence to support the case. Uh, the feds investigated. Uh, Mark Hoke, through his attorney, offered to surrender himself to the feds if they were going to take him into custody. That wasn't good enough. No, no. No, had to scramble. Gar- Garland and Ray and the boys had to scramble a SEAL Team 6-style raid on Mark Hoke's house oh, yeah. and take him into custody in front of his family, his wife and kids. Yeah, send a message. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ryan Marie Hauk, uh, along with Peter Breen, who I just mentioned, they appeared on Tucker Carlson shortly after this raid occurred. Um, it, ha- it had to have been 20, 25, 30. I mean, uh, we have a large property. Um, my entire front yard, um, you could barely see it. It was covered with at least 15 
um, big trucks and cars. And there were, uh, you know, like I said, 20, 25, 30 uh, men, women, uh, completely in jackets with shields and helmets and guns. And they were behind cars. It was, I mean, something I never would expect to see on my front lawn. Um, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe in China or Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We talked to Kevin Brock about this, former assistant director of counterintel for the FBI, counterterrorism for the FBI, I should say. And he said there's, there was no need to do this. Absolutely no need. And actually, you make the situation more dangerous for all parties involved when you do a raid on somebody's home like that because they're inside. Right. As opposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to accepting the offer for him to come into HQ and Peter Breen said as much on Tucker. Uh, this is reckless and outrageous. It put the Hauk family in unnecessary danger. Uh, and it was the sort of thing that uh, when we we've offered to bring him in, uh, didn't get a response. And not just, even if you're going to arrest a regular person, you just send a couple agents, they'd knock on the door, uh, not dragging the head of the family out, violating the sanctity of the home, pointing guns at them. This was outrageous and uncalled for. I, I, I don't know how to describe the FBI these days. I, I don't want to go over the top here, overheated rhetoric, but... Well, what they did was over the top. Well, it was, and the the thuggery, and just the... The awful judgment. You want to talk about a wolf packs? Pro-life activist. There's no criminal record. There's no history of violence. His attorney communicated to the bureau that he was willing to bring his client in. And instead, as you heard from Mrs. Hoke, 25, 30 agents roll up, surround the house, guns drawn. Well, because we all know they have better things to do. Like real crimes in front of her kids. Right. Like, go oh, pick up documents from Biden's compound. This is a hoax uh, in terms of just the experience that her family uh, suffered that day. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to tell the older ones. You, we can talk. We can cry. Um, we've you know, we've had some counseling. Uh, we have more counseling to do. Um, and the little ones, uh, they're scared. They're scared. There's a lot of crying and a lot of um, a lot of unrestful sleep uh, a lot of kids in our bed at night and in the morning well i hope every one of those agents who showed up at your home with automatic weapons is watching this and feeling deep shame i really do uh i hope the shame has been compounded by the ver- jury verdict yesterday mark Huck was acquitted on both charges good not guilty both charges in relation to this alleged altercation with the abortion mill volunteer Oh, this is but this is Merrick Arlen and the FBI will tell you, well, this is just, you know, we're just enforcing federal law. That's what we do. It's like Chuck Todd talking about uh, uh, characterizing parents that go to school board meetings as would be terrorists. Hey, uh, somebody somewhere issued a death threat to somebody. So the FBI is just doing its job. Right. Right. What that jury did yesterday. Is protect other Americans from the FBI when it's the FBI's responsibility to protect Americans, isn't it? 
Now Americans have to be protected from federal law enforcement. Could he sue them or for he absolutely should or anything? He absolutely can, and he absolutely should. Wrongful imprisonment. I mean, and something. I hope there's a. Uh, I hope there is a civil lawsuit, and I hope he and his family get a lot of money, and uh, the Thomas More Society gets a lot of money to continue their work representing people like Mark Hoke. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey depro answer line six four six three six type in. D.A., then a quick comment. Breen saying, we took on Goliath, the full might of the United States government, and won. The jury saw through and rejected the prosecution's discriminatory case, which was harassment from day one. It's a win for Mark and the entire pro-life movement. The Biden Department of Justice's intimidation against pro-life people and people of faith has been put in its place. Yeah, although I doubt they'll be chastened. Oh, and by the way, since the FBI is, you know, on top of it, Death threats, violations of federal law, you know, like firebombing churches and vandalizing pregnant pregnancy care centers, right? Has anybody been arrested in those? They are offering a reward, right? $25,000. Catholic, well, they, who's they? Not the government. Individual organizations. And they're hiring their own investigators because of the FBI's uh, lack of interest in these cases. Catholic vote. Since May, Catholic Vote has tracked over 200 acts of hate and violence against Catholic Americans and their pro-life allies, from obscene disruptions at mass to fire bombings of women's clinics. And the Justice Department has arrested at exactly no one. But Can't crack those cases. They arrest him in a blaze of glory in front of his kids. Hey. President bring a tank. I mean, Roger Stone. You had the conversation with Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan trying to educate uh, that yapping terrier who moderates Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, about the FBI's uh, meddling in elections to 2016. I mean, it's just the, the agency, every time you turn around, behaves in a disgraceful, anti American, un American, maybe is a better way, un American way, un American because they're advancing the interests of some Americans at the expense of others, rather than being a force for the provision of the equal treatment under the law, which is all Catholic vote is asking for. Why no interest? What are the resources that have been devoted? 200 incidents against churches and pregnancy care centers? Violence. And Nothing. Never even made the A block in the news. Well, of course. One well, of course, did. I can't. Of course it's not going to make the nightly news, but the FBI shouldn't be determining resource allocation based on what the D.C. press corps chooses to cover or not cover. Vince St. Charles, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, guys. Uh, wasn't uh, Garland supposed to be the moderate? Is yeah, there moderate. anything that says he's yeah. a moderate? Anything? I want him to go to the other side. Any? You know, you, you, that's you, how they sold him when he was up for Supreme Court. He was sold him is is the right description. You know how you you know how Merrick Garland isn't a moderate because the Obamas tried to sell him as a moderate. Of course, they're going to sell him as a moderate. Are they going to sell him as a radical? No. Right. Thanks for the call, Vince. How was Obama sold? By the way. Oh, he's a moderate. Uh, he well, was so the packaging of Obama was good enough to Buffalo George Will and Charles Krauthammer, wasn't it? In two thousand and eight, 
Yeah. Everybody's a moderate until they get power. Marty in Naperville. Yeah, good morning. Not, you know, not on as large scale as that, but I'm a small business owner. The government came after me to do a simple sales tax audit, which turned into a nightmare. First, they wanted to come to my offices and go through my files. The accountant said, no, you tell us what we want. We'll meet at our office. Two women got there, and all these women did was talk about how they hated men because they were going through divorces. Bottom line, I provided everything I needed to provide. I was wrong about everything. They kept talking about this $100,000. They called my customers, sent them letters saying, don't send money to my company, blah, blah, blah. Bottom line is at the end, I was ahead a few thousand dollars, and they said, oh, sorry, uh, you'll get a, you'll, the money will be credited to you in 14, six, 12 to 14 weeks. So it's just, it's not only with the FBI, it's with the, every government, it's just, it's, 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 it's bringing up, bringing up blowtorch to a peace fight. I, I'm, it peace, it's un- unbelievable, so. Yeah, thanks for the call, Marty. Of course, uh, it's uh, most dangerous when it's agencies like the IRS and the FBI that can deprive you of your freedom in addition to your property. That's which is not to discount the uh, harassment uh, that is attendant to the work of other alphabet soup agencies as well. But I'm just saying when you're talking about federal law enforcement in particular. Tom and Deer Park. Oh, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Dan, I know you keep your ear to the ground. Have you heard anything from Cardinal Supich? or the other auxiliary bishops in the Chicago Archdiocese, or the U.S. Conference of Bishops on this particular issue in case. We get a lot of pronouncements from them on various new forms of what they call social Catholic teaching, but I haven't heard anything from the aforementioned on this. Have you? Thanks for the call, Tom. I have not. I have not. Joe Biden is a related story yesterday at his like brief press avail uh, on uh, speaking of the Catholic Conference of Bishops. What did he say? The Catholic bishops are calling on you to not use federal dollars to fund abortion. And and uh, Mr. Tempersen said, no, they are not. Not all the bishops are doing that. The pope's not doing it. <gasps> so uh, just FYI, according to a dutiful Catholic, Joe Biden, the pope is no longer pro-life. Thought I'd give you everybody the heads up. Thank you. As opposed to as apparently are many of the Catholic bishops. Now, a lot of them are cowards. A lot of them won't address these issues. But the Pope Francis could not be more clear on the life issue. And if you're pro-life, then by definition, you're not supportive of federal tax dollars or state tax dollars or any dollars being used to terminate life. But Joe Biden's a good Catholic. He's Catholic in good standing, so he can just say things that aren't true. Doesn't matter. And will uh, any of the... Will Cardinal Supich or the conference, will they correct Mr. 10%? No, they will not. And thus the church's ongoing decline. Marvin, Burlington, Wisconsin. Yeah, good morning. It's uh, minus 12 out here and 
We're enjoying it. Yeah, uh, sure. It's not that bad. No. It's a, it's it's a dry cold. No, it's, I really, I thought I would hate it more, but it's all right. We're, we're, we're going to survive. Yeah, this, I, I was just uh, thinking that this FBI um, behavior is somewhat, uh, it's all been retarded since from the gold date back to the Clintons with Janet Reno and the and the show of force that they had to do down there in, in, uh, with the Branch Davidians down there in Waco. They could have had the guy at the laundromat two days before, but no, they got to put armored personnel vehicles on the scene and start the place on fire. I, I sort of think a lot of this stuff dates back to them and and they're morphing things into uh, into political entities of the state and, and using them as such. And then it carried on with Obama and all the other people of that uh, political ideology. And it's just a continuation of that. The the ATF and and all these organizations that keep sprouting up for this uh, disaster or that uh, perceived threat, and it's uh, this is a continuation of of, of of them using their so-called uh, levers of power to intimidate the rest of the country, and it's always on the same side, always the same side. Thanks for the call, Marvin. Joe Arlington Heights. Good morning. I think it's pretty apparent, based upon what happened in the trial, that uh, any reasonable person could conclude this was a show of force and an, an attempt to intimidate pro-life. Um, it, it's my understanding that the the, the jury uh, was uh, deadlocked initially, uh, and then when the judge had them return, take the weekend off and return, they had to replace one juror. It's not described why. And uh, when the second, when, when, when the alternate was sat, they uh, came to their decision in one hour. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had one pro-abort holdout, right? Right, right. But number two, my understanding is, is that one of the uh, witnesses for the, uh, for the abortion center had to admit when, being, uh, when testifying that the individual who was uh, at the heart of this, the, uh, the escort, had been suspended for violating their rules uh, about uh, uh, interacting with the, with the pro-life uh, counselors. Which and is, yeah. The, which, the FBI which, knew it. The FBI knew it. They knew well, he had been suspended for being too aggressive. And it had happened more than once. And that was part of the defense claim. And they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They knew they were going to lose. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Joe. Well, and Mark Hoke uh, said this publicly, said, I, I didn't I, I wasn't uh, initiating any physical confrontation. This uh, escort was getting in my adolescent son's face. Right. And so I stepped in and I said, you don't talk to my son. He was being a dad and a good one at it. Yeah. I mean, they, I, honestly, I'm I'm I am Shocked. more and more locked down to where Angelo, the late great Angelo Cotabia was before his passing, which is the FBI needs to be. Uh, completely reconstituted from the ground up. This is not just a culture of corruption at the top, or, or you can't just say it's culture, a culture of corruption at the top. It's just the supervisory level. Well, guess what? Uh, a fish rots from the head down. And since we don't seem to want to do anything about the supervisory level, then I hope uh, Jim Jordan and House Republicans pull together the requisite evidence to make a strong case for exactly that reconstitution I'm describing. Tim in Woodstock. 
Hi, good morning, Dan and Amy. It, it seems to me like the, the full weight of the FBI was brought down on a situation that could, could only be described as an unsportsmanlike conduct call. And that, and that would be, let's say, between two football players uh, on, the, on an equal plane. It, it's not even an unsportsmanlike conduct call to be defending your kid against this goon. Um, it, it had nothing to do with the freedom of access at a clinical entrance law. Um, this, this was simply uh, sending a message to people who stand up to the state. Um, it, it was sending a message, just like they did with the, uh, the school board, you know, yeah. with the parents at the school board meetings. Thanks for the call, Tim. You know my rule. I don't like sports metaphors for uh-huh. politics unless I use them. Right, yes. Um, but um, I like the, uh, the comparison, right? Prayer warriors outside of a peaceful prayer warriors, by extension, outside of an abortion clinic, threat to our democracy. Parents... Uh, challenging a school board on curriculum or COVID policy, threat to our democracy. FBI, protector of our democracy? Threat to our democracy. I, I don't think so. I think we've got this, uh, and the FBI's got it 180 degrees wrong. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook, or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. About 100 or so buses over the last several months have delivered about 5,000 migrants to Chicago, yep. Sanctuary City, in a sanctuary county, in a sanctuary state. And uh, Mayor Triple Threat's big idea to accommodate at least some of those migrants who have arrived is to use a shuttered school in the Woodlawn neighborhood, formerly Wadsworth Elementary and later University of Chicago Charter School, to house the migrants. Didn't you and Ted Dabrowski suggest that or say that that might happen a few months back? Use schools that are uh, right. closed or or barely barely filled, you know, right. 10% occupied like so many of these CPS schools. Yeah, by the re- way, repurpose them. But by the way, moratorium on closing schools until 2025, uh, right. most of the mayoral candidates uh, not named Vallis or Wilson support continuing the moratorium <laughs> even though nobody's there. It's, it's such of course it's such theater and people don't realize I, I carry around those numbers from wire points 
when we play schools that have really no no team. They don't even have a freshman team or a JV team. They barely have a varsity team. And I'll tell people, well, this is why there's 218 kids at the school. So right, what kind of talent that... are you going to get? That's school that can hold 2,000. Right. And we're keeping the lights on. You talk about environmentalists. You know, they should be up in arms. They're like, we're wasting energy keeping these schools, you know, the lights on when nobody's home. Well, there was a community meeting uh, about the migrant shelter at this um, shuttered school in the Woodlawn neighborhood. And, um, you know, Woodlawn is uh, one of the more violent neighborhoods in the, in the city. It's definitely top 15 in terms of street violence. And um, it's a majority-minority neighborhood, majority-black neighborhood. And uh, this was some of the reactions from Woodlawn residents to the city per their proposal. Who's helping other countries? Why don't you help the people that need it here? What's happening with our homeless? Where's the plan for them? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Are you sympathetic to uh, Woodlawn residents? I mean, we talked about this before, too, because this is going on and on, and the p- residents kept saying, no, she can't do this. And at the t- She's doing it. It's not if, it's when. So they're coming, and now they're going to be here. And I understand, you know, they, they want some of the state funds because Pritzker just gave Lightfoot $20 million to help those, you know, asylum seekers. To set up these shelters. Right. But it just sounds a little racist sometimes, the things that they were saying. Like, we don't want that in our community. I mean, can you imagine if it was reversed and, we, you know, it was a white community and we had, you know, these asylum seekers coming and we said, no, we don't want them in our community because we, we have homeless, too, in the white communities. We sure do. So I, I don't. They're, are you, they're, are, you they're, sim- are you sympathetic to their NIMBY argument and their help our people first? Remember, um, this is in a city that has guaranteed income programs with wealth transfer, giving people money for being I, what below the poverty level and uh, winning the, the lottery to be in the pilot program that Tony Preckwinkle wants to scale countywide. I mean that this is the also this is the leadership that you support. Woodlawn, not MAGA country. So I did did I did I uh hear any outcry from Woodlawn residents vis a vis their aldermen or in the direction of the fifth floor when uh, they went Sanctuary City? Now this predates Lightfoot, but of course she fully embraces it. So I I mean, I again to me. Oh, you say, well, it's it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Those Woodlawn residents are right, are they? I don't know. Willie Wilson is, you know, for the Woodlawn residents, you know, helping them first before helping others. Yeah, I understand what his position is. I'm talking about the residents themselves. I'm talking about connecting positions you take and people you support to consequences visited upon you by the people you support implementing the positions you say you support. I'm sorry, I I don't have a lot of sympathy for Woodlawn residents any more than I would if they put a wind farm on the lakefront in Winnetka. 
all this. Uh, it's terrible, uh, or it's it's a great idea. It's a great idea. We're going to do it in, in your neighborhood. Not a good idea. I mean, it's classic NIMBY, but it's it's bigger than that too. It's just the sort of uh, I don't know, you know, blind adherence slash complacent going along, and then all of a sudden your number gets called and it sucks. Your number gets called for the guaranteed income program. Great. Your number gets called for the latest special deal, waiver, cut in, cut out. Great. Your number gets called for something you don't like. Oh, what about this? And what about that? And this is unfair to us. Too bad. So sad. Got a text message. Dan and Amy, we have 250 Venezuelan men at the YMCA for months now in West Rogers Park. We're not complaining. Yeah. Okay. okay. Another text message. Um, it doesn't make sense to place people that are already in a precarious situation into a severely under-resourced community. Mm. Well, uh, under-resourced community, they're going to have, I mean, if, with respect to this uh, abandoned school where they're going to house migrants, oh. the uh, talk from the fifth floor is uh, we're going to have everything set up there. There's oh, going yeah. to be uh, access to city services, access to state services. Great. They're going to have showers. They're going to have English lessons. They're going to help them, uh, the job placement, and they're going to turn the rooms into little apartments. So we'll see. We'll see how well that goes. We'll see if it's going about as well as it's going for Eric Adams in New York City, where migrants who are staying at a three-star hotel on West 57th don't want to go to the new site that he set up in Brooklyn. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, because the new sites, they say, lacks good showers and heat. So they sent up, they set up the migrants did a little tent city outside the Watson Hotel on West 57th, and they're not so keen to go over to the Eric Adams' new mega site, mega shelter, mega site. How about that? Eh, too bad, so sad. Um, You know, the... <laughs> Well, I don't what like I would like, what I would like to hear, to little village. Oh, should go to the, little village because they're Hispanic. Yeah, right. Or, or she should bust them out to the suburbs. Or yeah. she should adopt what Karen Bass is doing in L.A. and mandate that hotels with uh, uh, unoccupied rooms uh, house uh, homeless, house migrants, both, either. I don't care, and the city will pay them whatever rate the city decides. That's fine with me too. You know what I want to hear from somebody, anybody, whether it's a Woodlawn resident. <laughs> uh, or um, a, a suburban mayor, neighborhood YMCA. If you don't like it, you know, I, I'd like to hear uh, a little repentance, a little, oh, I see what they were saying now. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't think this through. Oh, yeah, I I regret taking the positions that I took, supporting the people that I've supported. I'd just like to hear a little bit of that. You never hear it. And I'm sorry, I'm not willing to care, much less help, until I hear something like that. So uh, what's my posture? Maximum punishment. And you say punishment, or I say punishment, and it seems like, well, that's unfeeling. You know, punish people. I'm not... I'm just calling it punishment. What it actually is is maximum implementation of the ideas that you say you support by the people that you supported. That's all it is. If some people, I would call it punishment. 
Apparently some Woodlawn residents think it's punishment. Maybe you call it Xanadu. You call it whatever you want. Maximum implementation of the ideas you supported, the policies you waved the flag for by the people you voted for. What's wrong with that? Don't you want that from your political leaders doing what they said they would do? Well, here it is. Another text message for the safety of the immigrants. I don't think it's safe for them to be in a high crime neighborhood. Uh huh. And well, it is a high crime neighborhood. It is a high yes. And and so, is it is it uh, is it uh, fair or safe for law-abiding families to be in a high crime neighborhood and you know spin the spin the wheel and pick one? Oh, by the way, I mean the Sun Times, the uh, excuse me, the NPR Times, nay AFL CIO Times, they have this uh, like quick down and dirty survey uh, with like two dozen questions to all the mayoral aspirants, just putting them in the yes, no other category based on their responses to things like, would you reallocate resources from policing and invest in so-called root issues of violence, such as housing, mental health, segregation, and poverty? Mm. Uh Uh-huh. Mr. Safety at Cam Buckner is a yes on that. Of course. Uh, He's too afraid to come on this show. uh, Moratorium. Do you support closing severely under-enrolled schools once the moratorium expires? Um, Do you support closing severely under-enrolled schools once the moratorium expires? No. Mr. Safety Act. Quinn. uh, Quinn. uh, Cam Buckner. And uh, Mr. CTU. Brandon Johnson. No. Don't close them. Lightfoot and Garcia trying to middle the issue, but they're basically in the same camp. Uh, and, and you know, more money, right? More money for all this stuff. For example, now I'm not just talking about Brandon Johnson's 3.5% uh, city income tax for people who make more than hundred grand. Good. Absolutely. All, all for it. Surprised you even changed your vote to him. Um we're yeah, going to watch but, it burn. Let's watch it burn our money, too. Come on. Well, um, you you may get uh, Lori Lightfoot to come around on that. Would you support increasing funding to address homelessness by raising the real estate transfer tax on Ooh. properties valued at more than a million dollars? Yes. Know. Brandon Johnson, Cam Buckner again. Oh. Sure, of course. Absolutely do it. Because their house isn't worth that much. So, yeah, sure. Home sales in Chicago, 12-year low. Maximum implementation of the ideas and policies that... You supported by the people you voted for. What is wrong with that? Chris and Barrington, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, I think this is priceless. This is exactly what should happen. You know, they, they voted for old Larry Lightfoot. They, everybody wanted Sanctuary City. They got it, and they think they thought it was awesome. They were so proud. They, they, they posted everybody Chicago to the Sanctuary City. Now it's coming home to roost. And they get what they vote for. And I hope Larry Lightfoot gets four more years. Let's go. Thanks for the call, Chris. Mike, Littleton, Colorado. Yeah, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Just to to distill it down, what occurs to me is, you know, uh, what the left discovered, Alinsky codified and preached, is they can break the law and change the system faster than we can follow the law to sustain it. And, and And it works out perfectly. I mean, whether the shots, right, you got to get a shot, you got to get a shot, you got to get a shot. Now it's like, ah, you don't need the shot. Three years later, all this destruction, 
change the voting laws at al right it just goes out and out and out and uh, they know that and uh, we uh, your last caller is correct uh, the the the, the, peop- the the co-conspirators are the voters and i don't know whether to call them parasites or what but uh at the end of the day these people don't vote themselves in so uh, really appreciate your great work thank you thanks for calling yeah, i mean, what, what, why even lodge a protest We've uh, we've laid out our views and the basis for our views. Uh, people have rejected them. Okay. Well, nobody's stopping you. I mean, they can do the boogeyman stuff all they want. Just remind everyone that no one is stopping them from implementing any of this. This is all, with you know a few aldermanic exceptions, all one mindset in complete control of the state, certainly the city. So do it. Go ahead. What are you waiting for? Why the hesitation? Why isn't anybody on board, everybody else, I should say, on board with Brandon Johnson's 3.5% city income tax for incomes over 100 grand? Why isn't everybody on board for the millionaire uh, surcharge, uh, I mean the uh, million-dollar property surcharge in terms of property taxes, to fund the homeless? Of course. Why not? Let's go. Let's get this uh, guaranteed income program scaled countywide like Tony Preckwinkle wants. Do it all. Fast. Faster. Go. There's no impediments. Certainly not the electorate. Greg Jefferson Park. Hey, good morning. You know, the city, uh, I saw yesterday in the news, they're talking about having the city start to uh, shovel sidewalks uh, so that people with disabilities can get around easier. There's there's jobs for them, along with the pensions and everything else. That'll cost a couple hundred million dollars mm-hmm. a year. And you know what? You can Those bring uh, sidewalk shovelers will make 99 grand, so they're not subject to right. a branded <laughs> yeah, Johnson right. City income tax. Of course. The other thing is, you know, you can bring all those people up here in Jefferson Park. They're closing schools uh, in the Archdiocese like it's going out of style. St. Bart's School is now closing. I'm sure the church uh, won't be uh, far behind. You know, over here in our parish, or former parish, Our Lady of Victory, the school now uh, has uh, CPS, I believe, kindergarten and preschool classes. There are about uh, six or eight classes go on there every day. So the city's just moving uh, moving uh, their new uh, uh, classrooms and that into uh, defunct uh, archdiocese schools that they worked out deals with the uh, cardinal on. It's yeah. it's sickening, man. I mean, look Have at De La Salle. Thanks, they Greg. combine now their co-ed, and they have less than 800 kids there. It's going everyone's down. leaving. Everyone's going down. Everyone's leaving the city. Bill in Cape Coral. Yeah, I'm echoing what those couple of callers in the past said. Uh, these people of Woodlawn, they voted for the Democrats. So now it's time, like the great black minister said, your chickens are coming home to roost. Thanks for the call, Bill. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Time now for another reason why (laughs) Dan Puff is single. It's the rare twofer. It's Campus Beat and Why Dan Proft is Single, all wrapped into one course offering from Westminster College in scenic Utah. Ute? My Utah? Your Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. What are the Utes doing now? 
Uh, Westminster College will be offering a class this summer entitled How to Be a Bitch. Oh, what? No, you, we don't use the B. You be assertive. How to Be a Bitch is the name of the course. What do you want me to do? It's a gender studies course, obviously. I believe it, the guest lecturer will be Sean Caston. Hey, yo. Thank you very much. Hey, that's a the, question. Who should be the guest lecturer for the Biatch class? I've just offered mine. 312 642 5600, line, 64636 DA, Turnkey.pro line. The class will address questions such as What does the media teach us about women or gender and leadership, aggression, and behavior? Why are words like bitch and bossy so interesting yet problematic? Come on, pack. This is quoting from the class description. Come on, pack, bitch, and its related adjectives to figure out what you want to embrace and what we wish would go away. How could Governor Cox allow such a course to be taught? Speaking of uh, two credits for oh. how to be a bitch, that's a three hundred level comms course at Westminster College. Oh my goodness! Reactions, uh, suggestions for questions. The these young. Uh, skulls full of mush, hat tip Rush Limbaugh, uh, should uh, ponder while they're matriculating at Westminster, exploring how to be a bitch. I hate to use the word. I say biatch. Oh, I don't... oh that's much better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, it's, it really takes You know what I'm off. saying without saying it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with Hillary Clinton. Oh, you're talking you know, about you who should teach. You know, you clean the server or be the guest lecturer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How to be a monster would probably be better. Uh, that course, you know, and there's also there's different kinds of bitch too, right? There's uh, I didn't bi- know that. Well, I mean, I use that word almost exclusively for men. For men, um, and I use another word almost uh, exclusively for men that women really don't like. I think you know where I'm going with that. Oh yes, yes, mm-hmm. right. So that I, I think those words are much better directed at male impersonators like Sean Caston. Um, but I know that, I don't know, you know, everything's misogynistic, just like everything is racist. And so I, somehow there's like a, a double bank shot where even if I call Sean Caston a bitch, which I have now about three times, uh, that's somehow misogynistic and I'm blah, 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 blah. I'm not uh, being an ally of the gender studies, pangean drums and so on and so forth, whatever. Uh, okay. Um, so anyway, uh, back to the course. Now, this isn't the only course that's being offered at Westminster. Uh, another course offered, offered over the summer, Black Women, White Campuses. Uh, I believe that's that two w- credits, yeah. That will be, uh, the instructor there will be Rachel Dolezal, I assume. The uh, existing research on black female students on predominantly white college campuses often results in quantitative data that suggests that black women are more successful at completing degrees than their male counterparts. The course seeks to debunk what it calls a false narrative about the difference of the difficulties black female students experience on college campuses, uh, suggesting that black female students do better academically than their male counterparts leads to a dominant narrative of success that fails to recognize the challenges black female students face as well as the sacrifices they make in order to graduate. So even if they do better than their male counterparts, they're still victims. Don't ever forget that. That's the upshot of it. And uh, you didn't even have to spend, I I don't know, three grand to take the course. I just I just gave away the ending. Sorry. The textbooks for uh, black oh, women, boy. white campuses, black feminist epistemology, critical race feminism, 
They will be used, quote, with a specific focus on intersectionality, uh, will be, and that will be utilized to guide debates and discussions about how race and gender dynamics shape black female students' experiences pursuing a degree on predominantly white college campus. Well, you are in Utah, so, you know, you chose that campus. But anyway. Uh-huh. The um, course outline also... Uh, states that ultimately this course will examine in depth how race and gender dynamics shape the challenges of black female students on predominantly white college campuses face in their pursuit of degrees as well as how mentorship impacts their navigation through these challenges. This is heady stuff. Heady, heady stuff. This is the kind of deep thinking you can only get on a college campus. Well, actually not anymore. The exploration of it, and you just get the superficial uh, surface skimming when you go work in corporate America. But this is this is where you, it all incubates you know what i mean no you're still thinking about I'm how s- to be a bitch aren't you that's <laughs> uh, joy behar maybe another guest lecturer why would you say that because she, what are the characteristics because she constantly biatches about things and she spews off her mouth on topics she knows nothing about and just i can't stand her why do She's you She's a say, liberal hack, as you would say. Why do you say bitches? That's a loaded term. Why don't you say she... <sighs> she um, uh, makes points in a way emblematic of an angry harridan. Because <laughs> that's something you would say. <laughs> right. Because you just said it. Right. Yeah. She a- explains herself as would a man-hating shrew. But don't bitch. No, no. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in D A then a quick comment. I gotta find out where this Westminster school is in Sure. Maybe you audit the class this summer. Oh, um that's I mean that's not becoming of Utah. In case it's not obvious than this. In case it's not obvious, classes like this, even if they were not so provocatively entitled, have been a staple in college campuses since I was on a college campus, which is Another reason to amp to single because this is the sort of women <clears throat> that colleges are producing. Not exclusively, of course, but anybody who would take this course, you want to go on a date with them? Heck no. Well, I mean, I, you don't even want your daughter. You know, as a parent, I wouldn't want to pay for my son or daughter to take this class. Well, if your son is taking this class, he's well, either got a good sense of humor or there's something very wrong with your son and it's time to have a conversation. Maybe he needs two more credits. <laughs> yeah. so he wants to take something fun and learn right. about what you know how women tick. Right. What makes them so angry and how do they handle their anger? Well, um, I think Jack Nicholson. the cause. Jack Nicholson summed it up nicely and as good as it gets when he was asked you know, his character, how his character writes so well for women. How do you write women so well? I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability. Maybe they'll screen as good as it gets in uh-huh. How to Be a Bitch class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, Westminster's in Salt Lake City, by the way, of course. It well, sure. Would Mormon not be in southern Utah. Maybe Mitt Romney oh, can teach the class. Oh, that's Yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a windblown bitch, isn't he? Yeah. Or, or Governor Cox. Uh, Remember they, that audio you played of him one time? Um, yeah, he is. When he uh, is. <laughs> Does his wife know? What did you say? Does... <laughs> yeah. T- it, right. Um, I'm, I mean, you know, Mormon on the down low, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Just raising the specter. 
Um, Westminster College offers a lot of interesting classes. They uh, offer a sociology class entitled White Conspiracy Online, also two credits. I mean, you could pile up the credits this summer and have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, White Conspiracy Online, what does that course entail, you ask? Thank you. Uh, This course provides a platform where students can go online and discover the vast numbers of conspiracy theories specifically related to the alt-right and white power. Well, that'll be a fun summer. <laughs> Maybe you can get one of those, uh, uh, get uh, Hamilton 68 and these those phonies that uh, manufactured Russian bots to uh, uh, provide the course material. Is there a male equivalent of Biatch? Uh, what would uh. that be? I mean, I think that I think it's sort of gender neutral in a sense, as because it speaks to men who are essentially gender neutral. You know, they're smooth down there like a Ken doll. You know who I'm. You know the kind of man I'm talking about. They live all over the suburbs in Chicago. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting one of them. Um, Westminster College uh, continues to make headlines. You may remember other course offerings, including a gender studies course called Porn. The course description of Porn is: kids watch pornographic films in class. Yeah, was it Westminster too? Hey. That class, I'm sure, was oversubscribed. Len in Highland Park, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, Joy Behar does not qualify as a bitch. A bitch to me is a woman that is just extremely hot and a little above all of us, super intelligent, but she's got an air about her that men fear that I just absolutely pursued in my youth. And that so this is, is a so- bitch. See, this is the, actually thank you for getting us so back on track. It doesn't have a negative Len. connotation. No, this Positive. is this, there, this is what I'm saying. There are different kinds of bitch. There's the there's a bitch like a Sean Caston, um, who's a detestable figure, and then there's a bitch like Joan Collins in Dynasty, who is alluring. Oh, she was fun to watch. She was so sinister. See? Yeah. Am I am, Not... I am I still on? Yes, yeah, you you're are, still sir. On. You yeah. are on. Len. Okay, and I think you're referring to the c word earlier. Oh, you I know, might have been. In my days at the Merck, the C word, I said it once to a woman early in my career, oh, and I never said it never said it again for 30 years. But because I you were did hospitalized for six months? <laughs> I did direct it at many men, Yeah, uh, and, and that was the atom bomb. But, that's, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's where it's a pre- – those are words. These two, those two words to me, I exclusively f- for uh, – uh, for, for, uh, Describing men, describing, you know, units. Ab- absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And as a caddy, I often use it, too. Thanks but, for the uh, call, Len. Remind me not to have you loop for me. I don't need to be ridiculed while I'm playing bad. <laughs> Monica and Lyle, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi. Hi. I was going to say that if women can be the B word, then men can be the P word, and it rhymes with Rick. I don't even – the first time I heard oh, about yeah. uh, the C word, the first time I heard about the C word, I thought it was a sporting term. It sounds like a sports term, not an insult to women. So how so, to, so, so Westminster College should offer a competing course, How to Be a Prick. Exactly. All right. Exactly. All right. I can teach that. Thanks for the call, Monica. <laughs> Carl. See, Monica the, can't say the word either. Women can't say it. Good. Carl, big Good cat morning. in Oklahoma. Hey, Amy. Hello. Amy, I have to ex- explain to you uh, uh, wh- what a, the male version of a bitch is. It is a Bravo male, 
that calls an, calls an alpha male a bitch and then gets open him slapped like the little bitch he is. There you go. Now, yeah. The, the open hand slapping of want, another man, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's very uh, good. Uh, what I want, the point I wanted to make, though, as far as the, the black girls doing better than their male counterparts, yeah. why can't we just let them be successful instead of trying to indoctrinate them into being victims and social influencers? Well, th- thanks for the call, Carl. If they didn't... Uh, if they weren't tr- uh, persuaded that they were victims, then they wouldn't be spokespeople for the Democrat socialists. I mean, any confident, self-actualized male or female has no place with the Democrat socialists. And what's the what, what is the the mission of higher education? Political activism. Pretty simple. Rick in Downers Grove. Hey, good morning. Hey, I thought uh, being a bitch came natural to women, you know, like walking, it's like taking a college course on walking. And you ask the <laughs> professor, hey, how do, you, how do you get to that class on walking? Well, you got to walk there. So mm-hmm. it's like it's, it just happens. Yeah, that's uh, why Rick from Downers Grove is single, which is a companion segment to uh, the Why Dan Proft is single. One other, why, since we're on the topic yeah, why not? of why— well, I mean, uh, I'm sure HR is going to talk to us after this segment, but why, all right. Well, right. Why? These are, these are not any of George Carlin's right. words. No, no, no. All FCC compliant. Um, but why Rick and Dan are single? Uh, this the new hotspot for ladies in search of a husband. Oh, you I know this? what it is. What is it? It's so up my alley. It's Home Depot, isn't it? It is Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. Remember, Mont- I told you you want a, a handyman. You want somebody like Jesus, who is a carpenter. And uh, <laughs> you want yes. to find a guy that can, you know, be a handyman as well. Yeah, that's. Uh, um, I knew it. This is this is where it is. Women of TikTok have discovered a perfect spot to window shop for single men. Delete the dating apps in 2023. I'm headed to Home Depot to look confused, quote unquote, in the lumber oh. aisle. Oh. Uh huh. Where's but your that, plywood or your two by four, sir? Home Depot dating has 3.6 billion views. Oh. Wow, yeah, Dan, you better go to the lumber aisle. Yeah, but well, the but, plumbing aisle gets but, some PVC. But, but I, w- but if I was in the lumber aisle, I would literally be confused. That's the problem. <laughs> I would be of no help. I'm not handy, so that's why another reason you why Dan's not too late to start. I, honestly, I have no interest in. Did it. you ever take industrial arts or auto shop or anything? Uh, no, I was taking 17th century French philosophers at the okay. time. Well, one of us took auto shop, but it wasn't you. Uh, so, yeah, I can't. I, I just like it's something I have no interest in. I don't. I, I, I like other people have to build stuff and fix. It. I just like. I pay I'm, people to do that. It's yeah, all right. I mean, it's, it's just it's just like You're I. A just, I can't. I can't. I can't get jazzed about it. Oh. I'm. I'm. I'm like. I have a whole like home gut rehab going on right now. And, and you don't help out at all, or uh, th- this will be impressive to you. Yes. What did you do? My architect and general contractor. Yeah. Female. Hey. See, and she's and she's very good. See, I'm so sure I'm she's not really good at her job. I'm not. Uh, you know, I have. I, this is like com- confidence, whatever. She she knows eminent, uh, you know, infinitely more than I. Do. I have no idea. I don't know. It's like she's like, would you like this, like that? I I, I don't know. You're gonna get a new ceiling in your kitchen. What is this? What is the, What do these things do? What do we? Uh, how much is that? What is that? Uh, I, I'm I'm totally clueless. So thankfully she's 
um, reputable because she otherwise could take advantage of. Oh, she could easily. But do you know about framing of the house and then putting the electrical in? I know what it is. Okay. But can I do it? Do I know if it's done right? Not until I flip, try to flip on a light or something. What about no, hanging no drywall? I'm not doing any of that. Yeah. I don't do that. you got to get pre- rid of the ceiling tiles in your kitchen. It's so annoying. I'm too pretty. I can't, I can't, do, I can't do that stuff. I can't get dirty. Jason in Chicago. Yeah, I think uh, Joe Walsh should guest, guest lecture in the class on how to be a bitch. <gasps> that's another good oh, yeah, that's, that's another good good, uh, yeah. good, uh, good suggestion. Actually, sure. that's my favorite suggestion yet. Him and Sean Casson could They could do it team. together. Yeah, they kind of look alike, too. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Who needs common sense, human judgment, when you have the Federal Register? And all sorts of layers of bureaucracy and policies and procedures. That was in part the uh, gist of Philip Howard's book, The Death of Common Sense, that uh, really um, generated conversation that had not been taking place until that book was published. This is about 30 years ago. Such an important book, along with Harvey Silvergate's Three Felonies a Day, to get uh, both academics and policymakers and ordinary people thinking about the bureaucratic state and the idea that if the law is unknowable, you no longer have the rule of law. You're ushering in an era of the rule of men. And unfortunately, we didn't really heed Philip K. Howard's call in the death of common sense. He's had um, several other offerings in the interim, and he's got a new one now. Not accountable, rethinking the constitutionality of public employee unions. Oh, we know something about that in Illinois. (laughs) Yes, we do. After we just codified in November constitutional amendment that guarantees that we shall all work for the public sector unions in perpetuity, Even those who are not members of the public sector unions and derive no benefits, we just have our houses used as collateral for their guaranteed seven-figure pensions, which is how it works in Illinois. We're all spare parts for the public sector unions, and that's in spite of the Janus decision, which I want to talk to Mr. Howard about. Again, the book, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions, Uh, Indiana Governor, former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, and now... Senate candidate, Mitch Daniels, Uh, he writes about uh, Philip Howard's latest offering, calling on the deep legal knowledge that took him to the top of his profession. He's an attorney. The author crafts a strong case that the lurch into public unionization dismissed as unthinkable by such labor champions as FDR and George Meany was not only misguided, but unconstitutional. Philip Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. So um, the... um, the, the practical implications of states that are dominated by public sector unions, we know all too well in, in Illinois. And we make the arguments about sustainability, about fairness when it comes to salaries and guaranteed benefits like the pensions. But um, the constitutionality argument 
We know it's a sort of a rigged system where you have public sector unions financing the quote unquote management and they that they then negotiate with. But you're arguing it's un, it's unconstitutional. And so rather than, um, I don't know, uh, fighting a war of attrition through cases like Janus, maybe we make the overarching constitutional argument to address public sector unionization writ large. That's the goal of the book. I mean, right, we've, t- tell us the argument. You know, almost without our noticing it, we've uh, um, created a system in which we elect mayors and governors who have no authority to run government. And so, and so, but but so, what what's the constitutional argument though that uh, could upend this arrangement? Well, there's a basic constitutional principle that that government and government officials can't cede governing authority to any private group. And this is reflected in several places in the Constitution. But as it applies to states and cities, something called the Guarantee Clause. The United States will guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And what James Madison said that meant is that voters have to maintain the authority to elect people who themselves maintain the authority to run government. That's the point of a Republican form of government. And what's happened in the last 50 years, it's really only in the last 50 years, is that legislatures have been basically bought off by the public unions, and they've given the authority for the operations of government over to the public unions. You can't fire a bad teacher. You can't mm-hmm. fire a bad cop. You can't do daily management that makes sense. So you have government operating at pick a number you know, 30% or 50% effectiveness. You have schools in the city of Chicago that are basically run by the teachers' unions, not run by the city of Chicago. They wouldn't even go back to work for two years. No, I know. My kids are in the system. But what are the other ways that public unions undermine democracy? Well, democracy is a process of accountability. There is zero, near zero accountability in in, in government. Um, Democracy is electing to elect people elect the executives to run the operating machinery of government, to run the transit system effectively, you know, whatever. Um, it's unmanageable. There are these multi-hundred-page collective bargaining agreements that literally require union approval before you do anything. If there's a branch overhanging the rail line, the repair crew can't fix it. They have to call in a separate – can't cut it. They have to call in a separate crew to do it. It's just – incredibly inefficient. It's built for feather bedding. It's not affordable. Illinois is functionally insolvent because of all these long-term promises made by political leaders in exchange for, again, effectively payoffs. Well, for, let me... Yeah, let me play devil's advocate here, though, and, and pretend I'm uh, the head of the SEIU here. Say, well, wait a second. So you just said that they we make deals with politicians. So we argue our case. We present what we would like, whether it's collective bargaining uh, uh, over a particular contract or it's uh, other public policy. And all sorts of other unions in the private sector make the same cases and business trade groups and everybody else gets to make their case. So why can't we... Uh, exercise our right to collectively bargain in the public sector and make our case as well. And ultimately, it's the politicians who make the decisions. Sure, sure. that's a good question. So, um, first of all, there's a difference in kind. When, it, when, a, when a private group, whether it's a union or a business group, asks for a favor, they ask for some subsidy or favor. And that comes out of the public sector, and you can be, some of those can be not very good. 
what the public unions have done, they haven't asked for a favor from government. They've taken over the entire operating machinery of government. So it's not a little slice. It's sort of virtually the whole slice, number one. Number two, there's a fundamental difference between every outside group, including trade unions and business groups, and public unions. Public unions have an ethical duty of loyalty to serve the public. And what they've done over the last 50 years is mobilize this huge mass of public employees against the effective operations of government. You can't reform it. You can't run it. So that's what Not Accountable is about. It's about the fundamental difference between um, uh, public unions and every other group and, and what they've done to democracy, which I believe, and there's now books been out a week, a lot of commentary that people are saying, I'm right. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, it seems to me one of the angles would be uh, on this is to say, look, um, since it's a rigged negotiation in quotation marks between the public sector union and the politicians of a particular unit of government, then the contract is unenforceable because it's rigged. It's not it's not adversarial. It's a show negotiation. And so it should be on it should be on, you know, the legal should be unconscionable and thus unenforceable. That's correct. And so, for example, in trade unions um, context, it would be unlawful for the management to buy off complicit you know, workers to have a kind of a, um, a, a fake union. In, in the public union context, the game is exactly that the unions get together are generally the biggest supporters of political um, uh, uh, officials. And then when the, when the politicians win... The unions don't sit on the other side of the table. They sit on the same side of the table right. and say, now what are you, you, know, now what are you going to give me? Uh, I wanted to get to the Janus decision because there were such high hopes for that uh, Supreme Court decision. Mark Janus, a state of Illinois uh, worker, and it's uh, particularly uh, poignant for me, not just because it's Illinois. He was an Illinois state worker, but also because I was— uh, a co-founder of the Liberty Justice Center, which represented Janus uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court and continues to do great public interest law work in, in Illinois and elsewhere. And we had uh, such high hopes that uh, if those uh, fees that were imposed on workers be, were not mandatory anymore, so Mark Janus didn't have to devote a portion of his salary to AFSCME's uh, the political agenda and the candidates that AFSCME wants to support, that uh, you would see a lot of people leave the union. Uh, there were projections that unions around the country would would be losing in the billions of dollars, and thus their their political power would diminish. But that really hasn't happened. And I wonder, uh, not not to the levels that were anticipated, it was supposed to be double-digit losses for public sector union membership, and it's been low single-digit losses. And so I wonder if you think that it's the result of a lack of, of knowledge and obstructionism by public sector unions. We haven't been persuasive enough in making the case to public sector employees to that they can take a walk. They don't have to uh, be. They don't have to feel compelled to participate in things they don't want to participate in. What? Why has Janice not lived up to the advance billing? Uh, yeah, I, I think there are lots of reasons. But part of it is that just the power of inertia. You know, people are used to the unions and such. Yeah. Secondly, it's a kind of natural fear of accountability. And, um, you know, people 
just go along with the flow. They think in some mysterious way that the unions are supporting them. I mean, many public workers think that unions provide them benefits. In fact, um, the, the benefits that, quote, unions provide are, are, are paid for by the government, and you don't have to belong to the union to get them. But, yeah. but most workers don't know that. And I don't know about Illinois, but in other states, um, the laws have been passed in response to Janus, which basically said that if you discourage any worker from belonging to the union, you, the state, will be liable for damages to the right. union. I mean, right. it's like crazy. Right. You know? so, so, so I think, there's a, I think Janus was, was an extremely important decision. And by the way, most of the decision is not about the First Amendment right of, of, uh, of public workers not to belong to the union and, and pay, or not to pay agency fees. Uh, most of the opinion was about how the unions had made the public sector ungovernable. Had nothing to do with the holding of the opinion. Yeah. So, so what? Dicta so, in there. It, yeah. Yeah. So what my book does, what Not Accountable does, is basically presents the constitutional framework for for getting rid of this these controls, union controls over government. And uh, if public sector unions went away. The public sector worker says, well, then what would replace them? I would just be an at-will employee subject to the political whims of elections? No, you know, there was never any reason to give public unions collective bargaining. Uh, first of all, you can have unions without collective bargaining. That's what the National Education Association was, uh, you know, before the you know, 1970s. It was uh, well, like the American Medical Association, you know, it was advocated for certain policies, but it didn't have the, the power to kind of coerce government, number one. Number two, we have civil service systems. And civil service systems do protect workers, but they're supposed to be the, quote, the merit system. And what unions have done have turned government employee into the anti-merit system. So you can keep your job no matter how bad you are. Uh, that's, uh, that's no truer words have been spoken. Amy, did you want? Oh, no, no I'm good. Thank okay. You. Uh, the uh, book is Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. The author, Philip K. Howard, pick up Not Accountable. And while you're at it, go pick up Death of Common Sense and the rest of Philip Howard's oeuvre as well. Philip Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years of running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois, but you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan to have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for our weekly conversation with Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. 
I uh, sense waning enthusiasm for COVIDianism. I, I hope it's not the case, but I was disappointed to read yesterday that uh, Mr. Ten Percent, the big guy, President Biden, will end the emergency declarations May 11th. Only 90 more days to enjoy COVIDian hysterics. But why not end it now? Oh. Or March 1st or April 1st, when it should be. They're ex- briefly extending it till May 11th. 90 you days. brief you about that. It's been three years. You can't quit cold turkey. you got to ease people out of their COVIDian posture, you see. God, I, I, plus, I mean, think about the tears that were shed in the governor's mansion. Uh, and I'm right. talking about the one in Chicago. Um, over this, I mean, there's been nobody who's been more of a celebrant of emergency declarations than... One Governor Spaulding. Sad. What are we going to do to memorialize this on May 11th? Well, you know, he uh, music the whole he must be picking up on something because, yeah, yeah, emergency declaration. If you would have told me three years ago that the emergency declaration would last three years, well, I probably shouldn't have known back then because I could have done something stupid. The declarations. Death is greatly exaggerated because, lest we forget, you can always reinstate them. Oh, that's that's right. Uh, you know, even the Aussies are losing their vigor for COVIDianism. Oh, really? Uh, down Under, which was the uh, the country subject to perhaps one of the most draconian lockdowns of the era. Horrible. They chased people down and put them in... COVID camps. No coming in, no going out, and it's an island, so uh, that uh, really uh, limited people. Um, But they're not so excited about this endless stream of boosters. Listen to this report. Well, despite calls from health authorities to roll up our sleeves for a fifth dose, a large amount of Australians are still resisting getting their COVID booster shot, according to the latest data. Eddie Meyer joins me now to talk me through us. Um, Eddie, talk me through the numbers. They're quite surprising. Yeah, it's quite interesting. This is research done for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and it basically shows that there's a fall in the number of us willing to go from three to four doses, and that's particularly true in that more vulnerable population over 65. Just 24% of them have Um, have had their fourth dose. And right now, overall, just a third of us have had our fourth dose. 40% have had three, 17% haven't gone beyond those first two. Uh, 1% just had that one shot and no more. And 6% of us still remain unvaccinated. Now, it's, it's telling because there are still thousands of cases every day. And COVID is putting 50 times more people in hospital than the flu. And it's killing between 50 and 100 times more people than the flu right now. Wow, so the figures don't lie, but why then are people still reluctant to get another booster? Well, I had a chat to some GPs this morning and they say that there is there's a lack of fear at the moment. People mm-hmm. have seen themselves and others get COVID and they've been OK, they've had a couple of doses and they, they seem to be complacent about what it will do to them. The trouble is that there are still people who are getting quite sick and there are people who are getting long COVID. Mm-hmm. And right now the body that looks after vaccinations, recommends on vaccinations, ATAGI, is considering a fifth dose, particularly for those people who are in that more vulnerable Humble, group. Yeah. yeah, so that should come out in coming days or coming, coming weeks. OK, uh-huh. Eddie, thank you. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're looking to say, let's see, it's uh, COVID or my government. Uh, maybe I'll take the chances, my chances with COVID. Fear, you say. Well, that's that's all ready to order for 
the Australian government, I'm sure, will try to seize upon that. Maybe it's something else. Um, and by the way, this has been discussed at some length uh, by many who've been deplatformed. What did Australia do? Delayed the spread. Right. Didn't stop it. So now it's being visited upon Australia in a way that it has already been visited upon a lot of other parts of the world. And so, and of course, the uh, vaccines do not provide much in the way of protection from being infected. And the idea that, right, well, right. And the idea that uh, it uh, mitigates the lethality is increasingly an open question. So, yeah, so that's happening. Something else, too. Um, you know, we talked a, a little bit uh, earlier, in, was it uh, yesterday or maybe last week, about this uh, CBO report, $60 billion in unemployment insurance fraud during all the funny money payouts from the federal government. Yeah, maybe it was uh, $4 trillion altogether. Just a reminder, the Johns Hopkins University meta-analysis of studies done on the effectiveness of lockdowns and school closures and so forth. Quoting John Hopkins, we find no evidence that lockdown school closures, border closures, and limiting gatherings have had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality. But all of those interventions, quote, have contributed to reducing economic activity, raising unemployment, reducing schooling, causing political unrest, contributing to domestic violence, and undermining liberal democracy. This uh, John Hopkins. Johns Hopkins met a study on all the uh, studies done to uh, assess the effectiveness of the COVID-19 mitigations, all those things these COVIDians celebrated. That's their conclusion. So it seems like it was a full $4 trillion that was frauded, transferring money from some to others over the course of the last three years. And for what? Oh, by the way, uh, Issues and Insights points out in an editorial, uh, what did we get for all this? Look at the fatality numbers. At the start of COVID, experts said nothing would result in one, doing nothing, doing nothing would result in 1.7 million deaths. We did plenty, but the death count is steadily approaching that number anyway. Hmm. For more on uh, all things COVID here in the Midwest Center of COVIDianism, please to be joined by Ted Dabrowski. Now, Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Good morning. The emergency declarations, uh, golly gee, what will Pritzker have to do this summer when they are no more, unless he decides to continue them in spite of Biden stopping his? Well, you know, that that wouldn't be surprising, right? He might find a, a reason for doing it. I mean, of course, right now, two big reasons that he keeps doing it is he gets uh, more federal money for, for food stamps and for Medicaid. And so you know, there's extra money flowing into the into the state and he gets to spend it and makes makes him look good. But uh you know, he could try to keep it going for that, but if not, just to keep the power. He's he's been doing this for a thousand fifty-five days. You know, it's way over seventy percent of the time he's been in office. But if you and, look at um, our numbers right now are yeah. so good. I mean, if you look, I know Dan, you don't want to call it, talk about colors, but we're in green, which is the lowest, oh, and most of our state yeah. is in green with just a few counties in yellow. You know, if you if I invite I invite the listeners here, whoever's got some some wasted time, waste time to waste, uh-huh. go read his declaration. And it's it's you know like three or four or five pages long. It's all these whereas whereas whereas. It's so old. It's so dated. It has nothing to do with anything. And and I, I was reading it a couple of days ago, and just thinking, you know, if you want to keep doing this, you know, tear it up and do something new and tell us why you're doing it. But uh, 
it's it's a bunch of you know I hate to say it, hogwash really. Mm. Um, getting to the mayor's race, uh, you opined on this uh, recently. Um, the uh, the responses that we continue to get, the proposals we continue to see. Let's start with public safety uh, from the nine mayoral candidates on on public safety. Some are pro safety act, others are not. A uh, few are willing to at least publicly praise Kim Fox. That says something. Uh, they're critical of Lori Lightfoot, but the constant refrain from almost all of them is just spending more money on midnight basketball and social workers. Uh, is there anybody saying anything that's relevant to the the actual substance of the crime problem in Chicago? You know, I, I spent time on, on that debate that was uh, whatever it was a week and a half ago. I can't remember how long ago it was. But, uh, you know, I, I took notes. I tried, to, I tried to listen to what everybody was saying. And, uh, you know, for the most part, everybody, uh, and I'll, I'll give the exceptions in just a second, but, you know, the, the whole goal of the whole message is equity. The whole message is investment. And all that continues to pretend that um, the current progressive policies, and, and they're very progressive, um, you know, are good. And, uh, you know, this, this whole treatment of equity and diversity, inclusion, all that stuff, you know, it, when, you, when you strip out and look at the facts and look at what the actual progressive policies are doing, they actually hurt the blacks, the blacks that they say they want to protect and the Hispanics. Um, you, know, you look at the educational results, everything that they, they keep doing make things worse, right? Um, everything they keep doing on crime makes things worse for the, for the, for the blacks and Latinos. I, you know, I said this the other day, 95% of all victims murder victims are blacks or hispanics so every time they're more lax with these policies the more that blacks and hispanics die you know every time they're more lax on education and, and you know and, and and getting softer on on merit and achievement uh more kids fail right it's you know it's seven percent of black kids in all of cps can do math at grade level so 93 out of every 100 can't do math and they want to perpetuate those same policies so um i, I hear nothing but the same old thing the only two that have anything sensible to say and go counter to that are Vallis and Wilson. You know, they're willing to challenge the system uh, in a way that I don't hear any of the others willing to do. So, uh, but, I, but I still think that both of them need to, to, to differentiate themselves even more because they need to be heard more clearly. I know that might be politically tough, but um, it needs to be more clear because otherwise, you know, the messages are all getting, getting kind of lost when you have nine candidates. Is WirePoints going to be endorsing a candidate? We're, we're a 501c3, so we won't endorse a candidate. We'll, we'll point out the good policies and point out the bad ones. But, uh, yeah, we, we can't. We don't and we can't. Uh, Chewy Garcia wouldn't even be in this race if it weren't for the public sector unions. Uh, you could say the same to some extent. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, she's got some unions behind her as well. Um, uh, obviously, Brandon Johnson has CTU behind him, which is why he's considered some, some you know a contender. Um, we just had this conversation with Philip Howard about his new book on public sector unions. And I, I wonder uh, what, if anything, people in this state, I don't know, three Republicans uh, maybe, in this state who uh, understand how devastating public sector union dominance has been to the state. I wonder if what you heard, potentially heard from Phil, Philip Howard, um, the argument he lays out about the general unconstitutionality of public sector unions because the system is rigged and so the contract should be deemed unenforceable. I wonder if you think that's an approach that makes sense and should be explored here, particularly in the wake of Amendment 1. 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it makes sense. It's, uh, it's kind of hard to pitch anything legal and stuff like that in Illinois with the courts and, and with, with the union's power and the government power the way it is. Um, I, I think the real persuasion is, to me, it's, and, and again, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with what Howard's saying. I think um, you know, the, the more persuasive thing is, especially to the, the center-left people who might be seeing the city and the state kind of getting too crazy, right, going too far, they're going to start looking for, for alternate arguments. And uh, you know, the one that appeals the most to me is that, uh, and I've said it before, is that you know, we've effectively got two classes of people. And, and it, it doesn't make sense anymore. One class, one class is guaranteed, you know, guaranteed pensions, guaranteed pay by the Constitution. It's guaranteed all kinds of uh, protections, long-term employment contracts, uh, you know, free retiree health care for the, for the most part. So that one class has got that. And the other class doesn't have any such guarantees. It doesn't have any protections. It doesn't have anything. But yet it's forced to pay for the first class, and at some point, that will that will fall apart. One because it's becoming so expensive, especially with Amendment One powers now. Um, the, the cost of those government employees will just keep going up, 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 and and the ability for the lower the the, the, the normal people uh, to pay it will get harder and harder. So you'll have more people leave, and and it, it'll fall apart of itself. So you know, if we want, if we if we just sit around and watch it happen, well, it's going to you know fail on itself, or those center left people who are persuadable can come in and say, Hey, that's, that's right. We don't want to let that happen. Let's intervene and let's take yeah. away some of those powers. Yeah. It never happened though. I know. I mean, there's just, they just can't connect the dots. They, and they won't address the arguments. They, I'm, I'm with the, the working man and work and working woman. I'm, I'm with my schools. I, and so I, I stand with them. Do you want to pay for these uh, unfunded pension bills? No, I don't. Okay, well, square the circle for us. I don't want to. <laughs> That's basically what you get. So they just they can't bring themselves yeah. to address the underlying financial reality. I'll give you another example of this, and this is not public sector unions because public sector unions are sort of indicative of a larger uh, failed way of thinking. District 65, School District 65, this is Evanston Skokie. This is uh, one of the most uh, uh, racist and uh, – uh, sexualized school districts in the state the their superintendent there devin horton it's uh crt and sexualization of children all the time it's just a big incubator of political activists that's what the school district is and where there's any number of powerpoints and examples that we've gone through over the last several years uh, devin horton uh, some salary raises for senior personnel at district 65 Devin Horton uh, went from 250 grand to 286 grand. That's a 15 percent increase. Um, the um, executive director of communications for District 65 went from 109 to 123 year over year. That's 12 percent. Chief uh, Chief Financial and Operations Officer, he went from 195 to 215. That's uh, a little over 18 percent. You look at uh, the superintendent, assistant superintendent curriculum, deputy superintendent, assistant superintendent of opportunity and planning, assistant superintendent of study, executive director of comms, assistant superintendent of HR, special assistant to cabinet, school board secretary, executive assistant. All of those are $100,000 plus salaries. Uh, half of them are $200,000 plus salaries. As Devin Horton's approaching $300,000, and you know you do the net present value on his 
pension. I'm guessing that's going to be somewhere around six or seven million dollars. And uh, will you get a revolt from District 65 parents, uh, families about these salaries and their implications? No, you won't. No, no. And, and uh, you know, I'm just looking now right now as, as we talk about the mayor's race in Chicago, looking at and the CPS. You know, we uh, we ran the numbers. Uh, my, my my colleague John Klingner ran the numbers, looking at the National Council on Teacher Quality. You know, they they summarized 148 largest school districts in the country and compare them. Well, guess who's got the highest first year bachelor's degree salary? It's CPS, number one in the country out of the 148 largest districts. Uh, you know, for first year's master's degree, second in in the nation. Uh, uh, you know, maximum with a master's degree, fourth, highest possible salary, fourth. So. You know, money's not the issue, although that's that's what you'll hear from all the candidates. And you'll hear that, like you said, in Evanston Skokie. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, all we're doing is we're just we're following a path of you know, blowing through all the money. It's going to create more and more tension. And it's it's hard to get heard because of, uh, of, of uh, well, the obvious. But listen, I think the other the other alternative uh, we have on being heard is eventually these unions pushing too much on, on all this uh, sex ed and and uh, transgender teaching and all that. Um, I was I was with um, a, a group of moms, and I won't I won't say which from which district yet because I want to I want to properly do that. But uh, I visited them at one of their homes, and it's amazing the package they put together of all the filth that comes out of that school district. It, you know, things that can be accessed through the uh, school portal and things like that. It was phenomenal. The the, the porn, I, I was shocked, and, and they were so well organized and so well documented that. Uh, they, they, they're going to deserve attention for, for having done great work to, to expose what's going on. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, probably the only path to a shakeup at this point is uh, the shocking content of the curriculum in so, so many of these schools. He's Ted yeah. Rossi. And that's union power and that's administration. You know, that's, that's both the power the administrators and the unions combined. Right. Ted Dabrowski, president of wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Thanks, Ted. You guys have a great day. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The intellectual schizophrenia of the left. So interesting. On the one hand, they cheerlead or turn a blind eye to uh, the sexualization of children in K-12. through With respect to books and curriculum and the gender politics in front of the classroom as expressed through teachers. Even the systemic sexual abuse of kids in systems like CPS. Mm-hmm. 472 cases of groping, sexual abuse, even sexual assault, and crickets from the mainstream media. Never heard this story ever. Mutilation of kids. All for it. Hiding or, your pronouns from your parents. All for it, or it's none of my business. But when it comes to taking your your daughter, taking the family dog around the block for a walk... Everybody calls 911. This happened a couple of years ago in Wilmette. Oh, I remember it well. We so on the one hand, we're well. going to treat pre-adolescents as adults and let them make the calls, no questions asked. We're going to 
I don't know, participate or turn a blind eye to the grooming of children or the straight-up sexual exploitation. We're going to call pedophiles minor attracted persons. On the other hand, if you send your kids to Dunkin' Donuts down the block unsupervised, they want a tactical unit to respond. Parents arrested, kids taken away. Uh, Lenore Skenazi uh, brings these stories to us routinely, reading over at Reason Magazine. Connecticut parents arrested for letting kids ages 7 and 9 walk to Dunkin' Donuts. This is three years ago. Super Bowl Sunday in February of 2019 in Killingly, Connecticut. The uh, Rivers family, name changed to protect their reputation. The Rivers family lived near an elementary school, library, state police barracks. There were sidewalks, crosswalks, many Victorian-style homes, and Dunkin' Donuts. The uh, kids uh, wanted to go to Dunkin' Donuts for a long-promised treat for cleaning their rooms. So uh, they gathered up seven bucks. That's when you could get something at Dunkin' Donuts for seven bucks. And off they went. A few minutes later, the police knock on their door. The first cop, the mom says, the first cop showed up, said he didn't think it was safe for the kids to walk by themselves. We told them while we didn't feel it, we did feel it was safe, we agreed not to allow them walk around town unsupervised. We thought that would have been the end of it until three more cops showed up. Oh, my God. Goodness. The first cop sent uh, her husband to retrieve the kids, who only made it about two blocks before. You know, the neighborhood was up in arms and and right, sirens blazing. Yeah, and SWAT team was called. They told us it wasn't safe for our kids to walk down the street. That there are registered sex offenders all over town that could take them. That drug dealers are going to give them drugs. That was a different world now. According to the police report, which was reviewed by Reason Magazine, the police were obsessed with the possibility of sex offenders harming the children. Officers claim they received a dozen 911 calls about the kids during the short time they were gone. They went two blocks. Uh, Stop being a nosy neighbor. Well, also, 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 mom thought this was unlikely as they only made it past four other homes on the block. Oh, yeah. But they got 12 calls. Yeah, right. the officers proceeded to charge her husband with risk to, of injury to a minor. <gasps> they charged her separately for the same thing. They arrested her husband and took him away. <gasps> Mom says, I tried to convince the officers we weren't doing anything wrong. This was obviously futile, but I had to try. Then I went back inside to help with the kids. I found out later from my husband that after I went inside, the arresting officer said to him, if she talks to me again, I'm going to arrest you both and take away your kids. Uh, he uh, gets processed, goes back home. They began searching for a lawyer. A few days later, police sergeant visits the house and lets the Riverses know that they're dropping the charges. Admitting the law concerning child negligence was open to interpretation on the issue of letting kids walk by themselves. And uh, they thought, okay, well, that's over. But of course Prosecutor it wasn't. didn't want to take the case. Oh, no, it's not over yet. The police charges went away, but the Department of Child, Children and Families pursued its own investigation. Yeah. Okay. DCFS caseworker visited the family twice, interviewed everyone about their complete history. She was looking for problems, says mom. 
Oh, yeah, you better make sure that that house is in tip-top shape. You have pictures of the kids out. You have no cigarettes, no booze, nothing nefarious that mm-hmm. they could say, oh, I think they might be drinking. Well, right. An example of that is uh, mom tried to explain to the caseworker that the police had overreacted, but the caseworker maintained the parents had somehow jeopardized their kids' safety. When mom uh, revealed she had received therapy for depression some years earlier, the caseworker weaponized this information and insisted mom return to therapy. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, my God. Everybody goes through therapy at some point in time. It's not uncommon. Uh, Not everybody. Well, it doesn't Uh, mean you're a bad mom. I I agree. We know you haven't gone to therapy yet, yeah, but we're right. still trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, Department of Children and Families closed the case. Okay. The uh, impact was that mom waited three years until her daughter turned 12 to let her go for another unsupervised walk. Mm-hmm. Something what the mom said really resonates with a lot of people. I've never felt threatened by a single person in this town until meeting those officers and the social worker. Yeah, I go walking, jogging all around the town by myself all hours of the day and night, met and talked to many local people, and uh, this was the first time I felt threatened or unsafe living in our leafy suburban community. But I, I just, so there, on the one hand, there's this busybodyism and protect the children and let the children be children, actually infantilize them and infantilize the adults along with it. On the other hand, it's let's uh, start rearranging the body parts of six-year-olds if they say so. How, how do you square the mentality that would support, simultaneously support both of those things? The criminalization of letting kids be kids. Oh, my gosh, when I was growing up you do? in uh, another, a leafy suburb called Wheaton, I mean, the idea that we couldn't go a few blocks as kids, right, walking or riding our bikes to... Um, we rode our bikes to, miles to, to river to get, trails to go to the pool. Yeah, day. to get ice cream or to go, you know, to get something to eat or to, right, to go to the pool, whatever. I mean, it's completely foreign. And what, there weren't bad people around when we were kids? Yeah, I get it. The things have deteriorated in so many ways and so on and so forth. But, I mean, who's who's in the best position to make those judgment calls when it's obvious these are otherwise responsible, uh, caring parents? And and then police come in and they come over the top with don't sass me or I'm going to arrest you, which they did. I'm going to take your kids and talk about police brutality of a different sort. Totally out of bounds. Three one really, two. It's, oh, sorry. It's really tiresome. These stories um, that we we bring up on occasion are more numerous than I think we'd otherwise like to believe. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also reach us at six four six three six. Type in D A then a quick comment. They should have gotten a lawyer, and pursued. A civil claim against the police department and against the state agency, as far as I'm concerned. It's the only way to hold them accountable. I just, I, I mean, I was riding my bike. To where? Um, Think about it. It was two miles, two and a half miles, to go to work when I was 11 years old, caddying. I rode my bike to Chicago Golf Club to caddy. I'm I'm sure I passed some homes that had a registered sex offender. Maybe not back in that day, as it wasn't quite as 
the systems weren't as quite as sophisticated, or the the laws weren't quite as stringent. But you get the point. I, I just, but but it's the it's the juxtaposition that astounds me. What the community allows to happen in the schools right now, and then those same communities are up in arms when two kids are going to get a donut down the block. With seven bucks in their pocket, yeah. Frank Tinley Park, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. It wasn't a donut. The father said something to the policeman. Rodney King, he said something. He, If you run from the police, that's the worst thing you could do. This latest incident, that's what happened. The guy ran from wait, the wait, police. Wait, 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 what are we talking about running from the police? He, he, he showed up at their front door. What are you talking about? Right. He said that he thinks something is wrong, and the father laughed at him. And So what? He, he just... And so, I, so, so, that's, so, so what? So that justifies so the, the police arresting him? That's not, so I arrest it, you if you disagree with me rather than on the merits of whether or not you've committed a crime? I don't think so. I, I agree with you. It, yeah. The cop is wrong, but you've got to walk on eggshells. You can't say nothing. Or yeah. run from them. Your children. Well, well, s- saying something and resisting arrest are two different things. Unfortunately, I mean, you have to be nice to them. Well, thanks for the call. Uh, but that's not that's certainly not what I see in Chicago when I see uh, young people twerking on their squad cars. For God's sakes, do they get arrested? No. No. Uh, th- that's what I'm saying. There's nothing that's congruent about any of this about policing, about the application of law, about uh, children's safety. It's, you know, it's a paradox, or it's like layers of paradoxes. Does anybody think through this stuff? And by the way, um, you know, I'm pretty pro-law enforcement. I I think I've established that on this show over the last eight years. Yes, you have. (laughs) I mean, so, but the idea that a cop is going to come into my home or your home, or this family's home in killings, and say, you shouldn't do that. I say, I hear what you're saying. We won't do that again, but but it's safe. You know, I mean, we contemplated the safety of our kids. You're not the only one concerned about the safety of our kids. We think it's safe. You disagree? Okay, fine. So we won't let them walk unsupervised. That's the end of it. And that's the end of it. An arrest? No way. Referring it to Department of Children and Children and Families? No, no way. way. Way over the top. It's a waste of resources. So so you're protecting kids by traumatizing the whole family. Another paradox. Greg LaGrange. Hey, how you doing? I would put my boot on their neck of the Stasi wannabes and sue them civilly and also go against uh charge that DHFS or whatever whatever state-run agency that is, too, because this is all a conditioning exercise. Dan, I was just like you. Our, our neighborhood was a little bit rougher than yours, I'm sure, and our parents let us walk around. We stayed out all night, and I turned out okay, I think. I'm a classical liberal. You know, I'm pretty cool about that. But these people have to be put down, and you have to, when you have them down in a position where they're in a vulnerable position you have to go after them and punish them the thing is the state wants to condition you they want to condition you with law enforcement they want to condition your kids in school 
That's not a paradox. That's by design. Mm. They want mm. total breaking you down in making your own individual decisions. They don't want you to be an individual anymore. They want you to run like clockwork according to what the state says. Thanks, Greg. John Villa Park. Hey, good morning. I uh, I grew up at Sunnyside and Spalding, and I used to get walked to school, but I would run all the way home as like a second and third grader, and I was short too. I was little, cross couple streets, and uh, run all the way home for lunch, go right back to school, and then come back with you know the kids from upstairs. But before we left there, and I'm all for parents; they should be able to do what they want with their kids. They want to let them, you know, go down the street like these parents were, by all means. But uh, Man, I was I was I almost got nabbed when I was a kid before we left that neighborhood, and I think that's why we left when we went to Portage Park. And I live in Villa Park now, and I just don't let my kids walk around because I'm just paranoid about that stuff. But uh, for a cop to say that to somebody, there's no way the, the cops are saying I'm going to arrest your butt too. Because you know what? Sometimes you got to get arrested if that's how a cop's going to operate. Screw that. Thanks. Thanks. Well, they Thanks did the arrest him, and they took him away in handcuffs. Yeah, well, he's saying that you do something that actually deserved getting arrested. Right, not that. Uh, Ralph and Rantoul. Hey, good morning. You know, the uh, what I think the common thread here is, especially on the left, is that uh, it ties it together is that children are just tools to be used. So if they need to be used in order to advance your, uh, you know, your perverse, morals and programs, then fine. Or if children need to be used as a cudgel against uh, authority, you know, parental authority, then that's fine too. The operative thing in there is that the kids aren't yours. It's the liberal society wants to let everybody know that they're taking the kids. The kids are going to be used. That's why we're going to have to fight it everywhere all the time. Thanks for the call, Ralph. Yeah, and it's also using the state's favorite tool, which is fear. You uh, go against what we're doing in the school. Eh, Don't know what's going to happen to your kid and his grades. Yep. You go against uh, police and our interpretation of child negligence, and we'll arrest you and take your kids. Tim in Lakewood. Yeah, Dan, we're going against it. We're Americans. We fight back. We don't take any of that. My kids live a life of luxury. When they, we let them go run around, they got their gizmo watches on, we can call them, we can track them. There's no problem. If a cop came over and tried to take our kids, we're holding court in the street right there. It'll be over my dead body. They're taking my kids from me. Thanks, Might Tim. Might take you away. Well, you know. Like they did that dad. That's, you know, you have to make a stand. I mean, that, that dad made a reasonable stand. I mean, I'm not advocating confrontation with police, obviously, but... Um, This is the point. This is why I say after he was arrested, there's a forum for uh, dispute resolution on this, and it's a court of law. And uh, that family in Connecticut, I don't know if they did or they didn't, but they should have uh, filed a civil suit against the police department and that state agency if for nothing else than to um, indicate that people are willing to fight and hold you accountable and make this public so people know. Because, you know, a lot of these police, particularly in suburban communities, they live in those suburban communities. Oh, right. They all they know have, each other. Their yeah, kids they have play repu- together. They're on the same teams. They have reputations and concerns about uh, public standing, too. And, um, uh, 
you know, and sometimes it takes that sort of responsible legal pushback. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're uh, trying to wrap our minds around chat GPT and the coming AI revolution like uh, so many and trying to help you do the same by talking to experts in the field. Remember, we talked to, uh, well, we talked in talking to one wag from Wired Magazine last week. We referenced another's observation, prediction, that 90% of online content will be AI generated by 2025. Wow. If that's true, that's how quickly things are changing. Even if it's not true, it's an indication of the expectation as to how quickly things will change. Uh, There's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal I found interesting, uh, co-authored by Joe Ricketts, of course, Mr. Ameritrade, and the Ricketts family owns the Chicago Cubs. You know Joe Ricketts and the family. Yes, we do. Um, But this is uh, Joe Ricketts as a philanthropist, uh, uh, reformer, uh, which he does a bit of. Uh, about 15, uh, 20 years ago, he created an organization called Opportunity Education to rethink how we do education. And in his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, he and uh, executive at the organization he uh, founded, Opportunity Education, Ray Revalia, argue that uh, while people are concerned about ChatGBT threatening education because of the ability to plagiarize, cheat, uh, actually AI has the uh, possesses the prospect to revolutionize education in a positive way and get kids more advanced with respect to their reasoning, critical thinking, argumentation skills than they are in the uh, the John Dewey system with which we're still saddled in so many respects. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ray Revalia. He's the chief learning officer at Opportunity Education. And Manuel Matke is the president and COO of Opportunity Education. Ray, Manuel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having us. So uh, this is a jump ball here, whoever wants to take it, but just give us sort of the broad argument in favor of ChatGBT and other AI innovations when it comes to uh, primarily primary education, K through 8 and into high school. Yeah, I'll jump in on that one there, Dan. I think the key thing that ChatGPT does for us is it shows the weakness of any system of education that is just based on giving people information because information is increasingly the sort of thing we can just ask the computer for and it will serve it up what people need to learn how to do is use that information and to use the ai tools as tools so it's not just having an answer to a question it's knowing which question to ask and then what to do with that answer when it comes back. If we have more answers flowing in, then it's going to be important for students to know how to take that information and make sense of it, shape it, 
build arguments, reason with it, and so forth. And I, I think that is really going to be the fundamental turn here is to stop acquiring information and start actually learning how to do things with information. What, what's the, what's the, just like, let's get like get baseline here because, you know, it's a chat is described as like a sophisticated autocomplete, but obviously it's much more than that. And the potential is much more than that. So <laughs> what, what does chat do that Google searches don't in terms of quickly accessing information and then having to formulate uh, arguments or context around it? Well, the big difference between ChatGPT and Google, which is also why Google and other companies like that are terrified of it, is that Google will give you, what, 9 million responses to a question, and you have to still click links. You still have to figure out what to do with it. ChatGPT, when you ask a question, it will actually write you a response that could be an essay if you ask that kind of a prompt or just collect information but give you one singular and authoritative response. It may not always be accurate, but in all my playing with it, it's pretty darn good. And it's probably as good as any average person will give you give if it has the background information that has been trained on it. Well, we know the two largest public school districts in New York and Los Angeles have banned the chat box from their devices, but how can you stop kids from circumventing that system and using it? Well, I don't think you can, and I think that natural curiosity shouldn't be repressed. It should be encouraged, and letting kids know that it's there and what it can be used for and then getting them to use it productively is really going to be the challenge for educators. Well, so uh, the one of the other issues, though, is bias, and there was a, a, a guy who did a good tweet on this. He asked uh, ChatGBT to formulate two answers to two questions. One was, Describe uh, a debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump where Joe Biden is the victor. And it had this this long detailed, you know, how Joe Biden uh, was uh, superior in his presentation of the evidence. And, and then it had describe a situation in which Donald Trump and Joe Biden debate and Donald Trump is the winner. And it gave this uh, it basically punted it. It said, well, we can't exactly come up with a scenario in which this would possibly. So, I mean, so there's the, you know, the the who, uh, you know, what's the intelligence that shapes the artificial intelligence question? And it really is just a content question. And I suspect that more and more bots like that will get trained on very specific topics and will, quote, become experts, if you will, um, on those topics. But clearly... This is just a matter of the machine ingesting information, processing it, and then having the ability to formulate sort of complete sentence responses as opposed to giving you a list of results. So, so ChatGPT and any similar generative AI is entirely dependent on whatever body of information it's ingested and learned from and is, as a result, beholden to its creators. And that gets back to Ray's point is that – Today, we use spreadsheets all the time and calculators. Nobody's worried about needing to ban calculators in schools because they somehow automate some function of work. And I think the same is true with any kind of writing or even analytical work. And the key here is students need to start switching away from the, the grind work of producing things that you can send home as homework where you don't have to worry about it as a teacher. They just have to somehow produce it and instead have to shift more in the direction of analyzing, interpreting, establishing meaning of what things are, and doing the work that will shape what the robots and what the AIs actually can produce and how they produce it, so, rather I mean, than 
yeah. replicating that. So I like that. I, I mean, I like that that prospect, but I, I just on this bias question. I mean, it seems to me yeah. then we're we're back to the same sort of argument we've been having over Twitter and Google. Uh, and Facebook for the last several years is show us your algorithms. Um, So with ChatGBT, it's going to like show us, show us the body of information that provides the basis for the machine learning. So is it, if you're just, we we only look at news reports from, you know, the, uh, the top five quote unquote news networks and, and these uh, daily newspapers, well, that's a very limited universe of information and people need to know that, that it's not, it's pulling from, uh, very incomplete sources that have a shared perspective on so many issues. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I would I, totally agree with that. Yeah, ahead, I think, too, that we'll see things like, you know, if there's strong bias on one side of the spectrum, there will inevitably be somebody producing a chatbot that's been trained up on you know, more right-leaning stuff than left-leaning stuff, and you'll have your Fox bot versus your MSNBC bot. And I, I think what will happen eventually is the opportunity for these, you know, more sophisticated emerging systems that might pr- produce several different answers from several different bots, and then it comes down to training the students on how to sift through stuff and to understand that no matter what you get, even if it's from the the robotic oracle is still something that is ultimately grounded in human perspectives, which are going to be inherently biased and that working towards truth takes real effort. Yeah, right. No, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, you mentioned Google and uh, while Google's terrified of this, Paul Buckheit, who is the uh, creator of Gmail, said, uh, tweeted, Google may only maybe only a year or two away from total disruption. AI will eliminate the search engine result page, which is where Google makes most of its money. Even if they catch up on AI, they can't fully deploy it without destroying the most valuable part of their business. I mean, talk about um, the uh, gales of creative destruction here. The the prospect that a juggernaut like Google could be uh, disrupted or worse by ChatGBT and other AI, that's that's sort of remarkable. Do you agree with that prospect? Yeah, I do, because... Search results are pretty clumsy, and Google itself replaced other search engines that seemed even clumsier before, and the fact that they could index everything, but now indexing isn't that big of a deal anymore. It's really the question of how do you get answers. It does amplify the concern that you raised, Dan, which is if you don't know what the sources are behind that because you're not choosing from a long list of results like you do in Google, that the opportunity and the risk of significant bias is as extreme as it is in all of our search bubbles on Facebook or Twitter, whatever we're looking at. So finding ways to to make that more transparent is going to be key for all that stuff to work. So, I mean, then then this this it just goes back to, you know, if you're doing a, um, I don't know, a, a paper on competing philosophies and it's, uh, say, it's, it's capitalism versus Marxism. And so on the one hand, you have... The, the Marx Engels reader as source material. On the other hand, you have Milton Friedman's Free to Choose uh, as, as source material. Just to use two examples. Then does yeah. ChatGBT present like, you know, um, capitalists argue for this way of organizing an economy and a society based on this and cites, cites Milton Friedman and the Marxist would argue this and cites the Marx Engels reader. And then you have uh, students working through to 
identify other sources, try to understand the arguments, distill them? Is that sort of your vision of how this improves education, reasoning, critical thinking? I think that's an excellent example. Uh, I think getting the material out in front of the students more quickly so that they can look at it, source it, and then build on top of it is going to get them to a better place. I think that having a sort of educationally tweaked chatbot that does clearly specify sources and citations so that students have a place to build from certainly works. I think the other thing, too, is if I'm a teacher and my, you know, I've had the same essay prompt that I've used for the last 20 years, and now my students are just handing that to ChatGPT and it's writing the essay for them, I may need to actually shift my game and start saying, okay, look, I need everybody to give me a draft where you outline the points you're going to make. Okay, now I need everybody to give me an essay. Now we're going to go through and work on the revision process. And so we move away from just producing an essay to actually working on the whole skill of organizing information, generating information, revising information, and getting something that is maximally persuasive. And that's not something you can just hand back to the AI at each stage. That's something the students are actually going to have to do the work on. Yeah, that does sound more so, robust, doesn't it? Yeah. And go back to the Google analogy, Dan. Right? Uh, they're terrified. School districts are terrified because like Ray says, it's going to challenge them fundamentally to rethink what their work actually is. And I think they prefer not to do that, honestly, because it's going to shift what teachers need to do. It shifts what, how teachers are trained. It shifts how we evaluate performance by students. And that kind of a disruption, I think, is going to challenge them very significantly to, to figure out what education means in the sort of chat GPT or post-chat GPT world. Yeah, I got. I got to say, I'm intrigued by anything that would disrupt how we do K through 12 education at present. So, um, and if it, it makes teachers unions and Squirmy. and big school districts uh, nervous, that's probably a good indication that we're over the target. Uh, Ray Ravalia, Chief <laughs> Learning Officer at Opportunity Education. Manuel Matke, President and COO of Opportunity Education. Gentlemen, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Amy. You. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And they both joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. All right, Dan, I have a proud mom, mom moment to share with you. All right. Got an email from a former student at Blaine. His name is Ezra, and he faces some challenges, but he's uh, he's a great kid, and he you know, lost contact with Andrew, my oldest son, because they went to, you know, everyone goes to different high schools. But I got an email from his mom saying, hi, Amy, Ezra's featured in an event as a composer, and his piece is going to be played by two professional musicians, and his piece was inspired and named for your son, Andrew. It's called Andrew's Theme. He told me that Andrew treated him with respect, that he was funny and smart, and that he misses him. And I went to the event last night at Artifacts on Ravenswood, and it's played by a flutist and a pianist.
and this is the end, the finale, the last 25 seconds of it. What do you think, Dan? I think you've got a budding Beethoven on your hand there with Ezra. Very, yeah. very good. That's nice. And very he's nice. been chosen to write music for Carnegie Hall composer Xavier Foley this spring. So good things ahead for him. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.